Let us open up in prayer. Uh, Father, we graciously thank you that you are the great, the mighty, and the awesome God. And there is no God in heaven above, nor on earth below beside you. Is there any other rock? Lord, we know of none other. And Lord, we've gathered today to hear from you, your holy and precious words. Lord, that you said they are truth and they are life. And so, Lord, we pray that our hearts would be ready, that we would have the ears to hear what you would have to say to us. Lord, be with Pastor Dave and his family. We thank you for his servanthood and uh, how he graciously serves you, Lord. Um, be with his family, Lord. Provide healing for them. And uh, be with everyone who's here, Father. Lord, I do pray um, that you would open up the hearts and that the word would fall on good ground to bear forth much fruit. For we know that your, your word, O oh Lord, comes down from heaven like rain and snow and accomplishes everything you've set it out to do and does not return unto you void. And Lord, I pray that you would subdue me, humble me, Lord, that I become less and you will become more. Put your words on my mouth. Guard my mouth from error, O oh dear God. And we do know that faith comes by hearing and hearing by your precious word. And so, Lord, we pray that you would be faithful today, give seed to the sower. And Lord, it's your name that's lifted high. It's your name that we're going to magnify. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' holy name we pray. And the saints said, amen. All right, open up your Bibles to 1 John. Not the gospel, the epistle, way in the back by revelation. 1 John. 1 John. I apologize. I, I kind of, I, uh, I didn't expect this many people. You have little faith, right? So I didn't, I didn't have enough outlines. So <laughs> some of you guys got here and there was nothing on the deck. So apologize. Maybe next time I'll learn, right? But you follow along uh, best you can. So I, we'll do a quick background, obviously, because context matters, right? You take the text, uh, you take the text out of a con. You take a text out of context. All you got left is a what? A con, and we don't want to con the text. All right, God's word is very, very precious. We don't want to con that. So I'm, I'm sure you guys are already there. So First John, it'll be chapter two, and we'll be doing verses 12 through 17. Although I don't believe we'll get to. 15 and 17, but that's okay. So the apostle John, John A, not John B. John B is John the Baptist. John A is John the apostle. Sometimes all those names in the Bible, we can get mixed up. So this is John the apostle. So John is believed to have written this epistle um, roughly around 80 to 95 AD. Uh, we're not gonna argue over year numbers. I mean, it doesn't, that's, that's what I got. Could be wrong, but that's what I got. And he was uh, also responsible, believed to have written 2 John, 3 John, the Gospel of John, and the book of Revelation. This Apostle John was known as the Apostle of Love. He, love is one of his favorite words, the word agape, right? The selfless love, the love that's on the cross. The Apostle John, if you guys remember, when Jesus was crucified and taken, all the other apostles left. And the Apostle John was the last one at the foot of the cross, he would be considered one of Jesus' three inner circle, along with Peter and James. So we know that John knew Jesus very, very well, and he had a close, close relationship with him. John was believed to be advanced in years at this time, and this is believed, tradition tells us, after he was exiled to the island of Patmos, where he believed to have written Revelation. So this is believed to be after that, where he was overseeing churches in Ephesus, and he's writing to those churches as a concerned parent or concerned teacher at that time. And so John's reasons for writings. I love this epistle because it's black and white. That's why I love it. It's either you're this or you're that, but it's seen to be, it's kind of a litmus test for believers. Are you truly part of the family of God? 
because we know that many people say, yes, I'm a Christian. Got the cross. I go to church, sometimes Easter, sometimes Christmas, sometimes in between. But I'm a Christian. But then we see in behavior, they don't match. It doesn't line up. And we see throughout scripture, we see that belief and behavior cannot be divorced from one another. It's been said that what belief is brought together, let not bad behavior separate. And so belief and behavior go hand in hand with one another. I can always tell truly what somebody believes, not by what they say, by how they act, by how they behave. See, if you've truly been born again and the Holy Spirit lives inside of us, our lives change, transformed. He says some 100 fold, some 60, some 30, but there's change. Is there a difference between a caterpillar and a butterfly? Is there a difference between a tadpole and a frog? Is there a difference between a dead person and a live person? See, this is the difference that should be seen in each and every born again believer. Reasons for writing, John says in chapter one, he says, I write that we may have fellowship with God and one another. See, relationship is what we have. Okay, that's what we have related to one another. But fellowship is what we do. It's a Greek word koinonia. It means to share or partake. And so what we do is we share the gifts of the Holy Spirit with one another. We share Jesus with one another. That's why you do not forsake the fellowship. All right? Now, obviously, I'm going to be sensitive as I, as I can be. Those people who don't feel comfortable or they're sick or, you know, they have pre-existing conditions, completely understandable. Let each man be convinced in their own mind, right? But if none of that's going on and you're not in fellowship, there's a problem, Right? Why would we not be in the place where the family of God is, where the word of God is, where the spirit of God is? Why would a born again believer in the family of God not want to be in a place like this, right? And so John is putting out, laying out the groundwork for, do, are you part of the family of God? Surely many of us look and resemble our parents. Therefore, too, the Christian should eventually look and resemble our father, Secondly, chapter one, he says that you may have joy and that your joy may be full. As you guys have heard it said, the equation for joy is Jesus, others, then yourself. By that time, you don't even matter. Once you put Jesus first and others first, you'll have the fullness of joy right there. But John writes that they may have fellowship and that they may have joy and joy may be full. Thirdly, he says in chapter two, that you may not sin. What? We already know that. Well, now you're going to hear it again, that you may not sin. Because sin is egregious to God. Sin breaks fellowship. Sin destroys relationships. Sin cripples the body of Christ. Sin has us misrepresent God's heart. Even as born again believers, sin is a problem. It interrupts fellowship, but it will never break sonship. It's one of the blessings of being a child of God. Fourth, he says that we may not be deceived. False teachers you guys remember the Apostle Paul, Acts 20, I believe, he says, after I leave, grievous wolves are going to come in, not sparing the flock. And grievous rules always follow where the truth is. So when it leaves, they can sow in a little bit of dangerous heresies on the new believers to make them go astray. Lastly, John writes and he says in chapter 5, he says that we may know that we are saved. See, Christianity is not one of those, I guess so. I might, I maybe, hopefully if I get there, maybe tip the scales a little bit. It's not like that. See, when Jesus died on the cross, he said, it is finished, completed, testalicy, meaning paid in full. The price has been paid. 
And so John wants his readers to know that you are born again. You are going to heaven. Your name is written in the land's book of life. You don't have to wonder. You don't have to guess. This is a for sure completed fact. As I love when he says, uh, the writer of Hebrews says that God who cannot lie, that he promised any two immutable things that God cannot lie. When he couldn't swear by any, any name greater, he swore by himself. And so God's word, we can take it and cast that in to heaven. Amen. So those are the five reasons he writes and It's a wonderful epistle. And I love it because it gets straight to the point. Are you part of the family of God or are you not? And he gives these tests you can take each and every believer. We can take these tests to see where we are with the Lord. And I do hope we pass them because there's a, a group known as the Gnostics who did not pass that test. And that was one of the main issues going on. All right, we'll get to our outline. As our Lord Jesus was on the way to the cross, he knew that his disciples were going to need two things, encouragement and exhortation. He tells them in John 16, that in the world, you will have tribulation, but in me, you will have peace. Therefore, be of good cheer because I have overcome the world. All good teachers are good at encouraging and exhortation. Encouragement builds you up. Exhortation sends you out. If you're just encouraged and you're not given a directive, a call to act, then you're just sat there built up to do nothing. And surely there are times where we just need encouragement. But here in this epistle, this section of scripture, John does just that in the following passage. So I titled the message, because you know Jesus. Several times it says, because, 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 because you know Jesus, you have these things. And in the verses before, it was, you, do you know Jesus? This is how you know. And he says, you know you know him. If you say you know him, we know that you keep his commandments. And there was two main things, obedience and agape love. Very central, very fundamental. If we say that we know him, and he says, you don't keep his commandments, or you have no genuine desire to obey God, he says, you're a liar, and the truth is not in you. I didn't say that. The Bible said that. He says, you're a liar and the truth is not in you. That's straight in the script. And so now we get here and I tell it because you know Jesus. First point, I have in Christ. And there's four things in Christ. As we go through this, he addresses several maturity levels of believers. He deals, he deals first with the believers as a whole, little children, he says. And that's just dealing with everyone in the body of Christ. And he says, first and foremost, your sins are forgiven. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Yes, Jesus, the burden is gone. The debt has been paid. And he says, your sins are forgiven. Secondly, um, point B in the outline, those who have it. Verse 13a and 14a, he says that you know the father. See, when you come into the family of God, he's no longer your enemy. He's your father. The Bible says the Holy Spirit comes inside of us and we cry, Abba. That means daddy. And daddy's never far away. Daddy's always close. We can run to him anytime and any place because of what Jesus has done on the cross for each and every one of us. And then on point C, we are victorious over Satan through the word of God that makes us strong. Guess what? As believers, we shouldn't continue in old sins that we just cannot get over. The scripture says, yeah, you are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And 1 John 4.4 says that greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. We have all these wonderful promises in scripture, but just as the disciples needed to hear it before Jesus left, and we need to hear it and they need to hear it 
is because we need to remember this in order for us to overcome why we live here on earth. Second part, in the world, and we won't, probably won't get to this, but next month I'm up here, we'll, we'll go over it. But those, because you know Jesus, you don't have a love for the world. It says, do not love the world nor the things that are in it. All the things that are, of the, all the things that are in the world are not of the Father. And if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them as believers. We don't have love for this world. Then he says, we'll find no satisfaction in the things of the world. You know, it's been said that because we've been created for God, that our souls are restless until they rest in him. And so you can try to find anything on this earth to try to satisfy that, what we call God-shaped vacuum, and you'll be just like the woman at the well. Jesus told her, you'll thirst again, and you'll thirst again, and you'll thirst again. And you won't find true satisfaction until you rest in the Lord Jesus Christ and him alone. Lastly, we desire the will of God. And I love it. I think it's in Psalm 40 where it says, I delight to do thy will, O God, that law is within my heart. As true born-again believers, as we transition, yes, we all need to know that our sins are forgiven, right? That's step one. That's, that's, you've just begun, but it goes further from there. Then you need to grow in a love relationship with the Lord. Not a religionship, a relationship with the Lord, where you have fellowship with him and one another. And then as you mature, you share your faith. We don't hide it under a bushel. No, I'm going to let it shine. So as believers, that's how we need to grow. And that's called our sanctification. All right, let's get to the script. Hopefully that was quick. Good. Amen. You guys are still with me, right? No hypothermia? All right. That's good stuff. All right, so we're going to start at verse 12. And so just quick catch up because it's important. So after John tells them basically the test of do you know him? Do you have a relationship with Jesus? He talks about if you, you know, Jesus says, if you love me, you obey my commandments. No, that doesn't mean keep all the commandments perfectly. Nobody can do that. That's impossible, right? We still have unredeemed flesh. That's hard. But for the believer, there should be a genuine desire to want to obey God. Like coming to church, right? <laughs> like praying and reading your Bible. If you hear a Bible verse and it makes you mad, I'm concerned for you. If you don't want to be in fellowship with God's people, I have a big question mark for you. All right. You should pray about that because a true born again believer loves to be in the presence of God's people, loves to be in God's word. Now we have our moments, right? But there should be a genuine desire there. And so John says, hey, we keep his commandments. We say we know him. And then he says, a new commandment I give, but an old commandment. And it's so known then that he doesn't even say what it is because they already know. He reverts back to Jesus in John 13, 34, 35, where he tells him a new commandment I give unto you that you must love one another as I have loved you, you must also do. And then he says, by this, all men will know you're my disciples. By the love you have one to another. Church, how are we doing with the love? Oh my, even the non-believers know we're supposed to love one another. You you're supposed to love, love each other, right? Even they know that. But at the same time, it seems like sometimes we've abandoned this very central, fundamental fact about being a Christian. Is we're supposed to love one another, right? That's one of the central evidences to know that you're in fellowship with God. And so he compares light and darkness, and he compares love and hate for the brethren. And then he transitions into verse 12. And we can read it in the text. He says, I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name 
sake. He says, I write to you. This term is used five times in this chapter alone. It means this is why I'm writing, also known as a statement of purpose, author's intent. Early in verse one, like I said in this chapter, he says, I am writing to you that you may not sin. Because the Gnostics, which is a heretical group, I'll go into what they believe later, but they were walking around sinning and said it was cool. They, they thought it was okay. And they were saying that they knew the Lord. And John would exhort them and say, no, no, for you who know God, you are different. You don't walk around in willful rebellion against God. You have holiness living inside of you. Romans 8, 11 power, which says the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is living inside every single believer. This phrase is given with the purpose to give information and directions. You guys have heard the scripture, 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is breathed out of the mouth of God and given to us. And it's profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instructions in righteousness. That we may all be thoroughly equipped unto every good work. So what is written is extremely important. It is through God's written revelation, the Bible, the scriptures, that where we're informed of who he is. We can trust what has been written down. And I get this a lot. Well, I can't, you know, the Bible's written, I mean, how long ago? And a man wrote it, men wrote it, Peter. I mean, you know, I can't trust that. And I'll ask, well, where'd you hear that from? Well, someone, well, you trust that, but you can't trust what's been written down. And every single time it gets more and more. And so they say, well, I can't believe in absolute truth. And I would say, is that absolutely true? right? And it just goes back to, you go on this dog chasing its tail, you know, that's not true. But here's the fact about the Holy Scriptures. It is the most reliable document of antiquity that we have today. No other book of antiquity comes even close. It is a reliable collection of 66 historical documents written by over 40 eyewitnesses and companions of eyewitnesses from many different walks of life, from fishermen to kings to shepherds, military men, tax collectors, religious leaders, a tent maker, and doctors. And it was written over the space of 1,500 years in three different languages, three different continents, 13 different countries. The writers who wrote, they wrote of supernatural events in fulfillment of specific prophecy. There's one central theme throughout the entire scripture. That's God's redemptive plan for mankind through one person, the man Christ Jesus, fully God, fully man. It's proven archaeologically, historically, scientifically, and prophetically. The writers claim that their writings were divine rather than human in origin. There's only one way that that's possible. And why is that possible, saints? I think you know. Because God wrote it, right? Peter would then say that no interpretation of Scripture ever came by the will of man. But holy men of God spoke as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Saints, we can trust what's been written. We don't need to question it. This is the real deal right here. If God said it and he put it down for me, I most definitely believe it. So it's written, I write unto you. In his word, his nature and character is revealed. His mighty acts so that we may believe on him. His will and his way. His master plan to redeem mankind. Many would say, I don't know what the will of God is for me. What is the will of God? I would encourage you to read the scriptures. I would encourage you to pray because anything that God wants us to know, you can find it right here in the word of God. John then uses this term, little children. This doesn't mean little babies, but the term actually means a Greek word, technion. And it's a term of affection from a teacher 
to his disciples. And it means all children of God. Anyone who's born into the family of God. And uh, the NLT version says, to you who are God's children. So, so John's indicating who his audience is. That this goes to all the believers that are in the church. And this is very important because we need to know in context who he's talking to. Now, some of you, most of you already know, but some of you may not. Well, how do I become a believer? What am I supposed to do? Do I got to jump through hoops? Got to do backflips? Jump off the roof? What is it? Well, one can only become a child of God by placing their trust in Christ for salvation alone. And I kind of get it all the time that, and I saw it on the end, I was really hesitant, but someone put on face, they're like, we're all God's children. And it sounds good. It sounds wonderful. Yeah, you know, we are. No. But and, scripture says, no, we're all God's creation. Okay. We're all created in the image of God. But the scripture says very clear in John 1, 12, he says, to those who receive him, to them, he gave them power to become children of God to those who believe on his name. And so we have to be clear and distinctive. You don't just wake up and you're automatically saved. We all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So you become a child of God by trusting in the finished work of Christ for salvation alone. See, it's called faith and repentance, and it's, one, it's, it's, it's one, one, two sides of the same coin. And so I like to say, like, look, in order for you to, if you're in Los Angeles, in order for you to get to New York, you have to leave Los Angeles first to get to New York. And that's what repentance and faith is, is that you change direction, and you end up going this way. So you're trusting in yourself. You get the revelation from God. No, that's not good, trusting in myself. That didn't work out too well. So I'm going to turn this way and now trust in Christ. And that's how easy it is, just like that. And from that point forward, supernaturally, the Holy Spirit would change. See, this is the heart of a pastor. John had labored for, over these believers. He had prayed for them, grew a love, affection. And that's how we feel about you guys. It's worse gravely concerned about your spiritual growth. We don't want you guys just to stay in the I'm forgiven stage. We want you guys to progress on. See, this, this term that John uses was also used by Jesus in John 13, 33, where he gave his disciples the commandment to love one another. Also used by the apostle Paul when he had concerns for their spiritual state. And see, the same term of endearment should be familiar to all of us. And what I mean by that is, is we've all been commanded to go therefore out and preach the gospel and make disciples. It's not just for the pastors. Sorry, can't let you guys off the hook. All of us need to go therefore out and make disciples. You say, well, Josh, I haven't been saved that long. Hey, John 9, the blind man, he's seconds. He's already telling people about Jesus. No excuses, right? He, 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 didn't even see, he hadn't even seen Jesus. He didn't even know if it was really him. And he was already telling people, man named Jesus. I was once blind, now I see, man named Jesus. Man named Jesus every time. And so you don't have to know all the scriptures to share your faith. Realistically, all you need to know is this is who I was before. This is who I'm becoming and who I am now. And what was in the middle was Jesus. That was the change. And that's good enough. But on the flip side, that doesn't mean you shouldn't read your Bible, right? That doesn't mean you still shouldn't study to find yourself approved unto God. A workman needs not be ashamed and rightly divide the word of truth. See, we need to be redeeming the time and what I like to call make eternal investments. See, some of us have some friendships and some people that we hang around and we don't have any type of godly fellowship with them. That essentially is a waste of time in the kingdom of God, right? It's a waste of time. How can I be around somebody, not be concerned about where they're going to spend eternity, have that opportunity and then take my light and hide it under a bushel, right? Why are we ashamed of the gospel? What makes us so ashamed? 
The fact of the matter is, is that the scared disciples before the Holy Spirit showed up, they were doing the same thing. But when you saw those disciples filled with the Holy Spirit, they said they could not deny that those men had been with Jesus. So the answer is we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. See, saints, these are the best investments we can make. Those are where neither moth nor rust destroys. Thieves do not break in and steal. Money bags do not grow old and are treasures in heaven which do not fail. These investments impact the eternal kingdom of heaven. Saints, it starts in our homes, husbands and wives, shining light on one another with children. I will say this, our personal devotion is our springboard to every other ministry in our lives. If you lack in personal devotion, you don't have much to offer to anybody else. So saints, how are we doing with taking intentional time away to study and meditate on God's word? This is the exhortation part, right? <laughs> how much time do we take? And it doesn't mean you have to go spend five hours in the mountaintop, go to Mount Sinai. It doesn't mean you have to do any of that, but do you take time out intentionally? Not an accident. Oh, I got my alarm, got my, my daily reading, right? And that's fine. It's better than nothing. But when are you going to take it to a point where you intentionally do that? Because therein is part of our growth, the foundation of our growth. Amen. amen. That was amen. Praise the Lord. <laughs> truth be told. Truth be told. All of our relationships should be mission-based. There's a mission to it. All of our relationships, meaning rooted in evangelism, rooted in shining the light in every interaction. Essentially, we are the hands and feet and mouthpiece of Jesus. If you guys look at the Gospels and then you look at Acts, it's like Jesus never left. Everything that Jesus was doing and saying, the apostles were doing it too. Because he says that I will be with you always until the end of the earth. And the Holy Spirit was inside each and every one of them. And they could not deny it because they had the Holy Spirit. As I said earlier, the apostles in Acts had the testimony from the religious leaders that they saw the boldness of Peter and John. They marveled and said, these men had been with Jesus. You know, Paul's exhortation in 2 Corinthians 5, he says, We know no one according to the flesh, meaning we must look at everyone as a potential believer. And there's several schools of thought that some people might refute that, but I'll say this. Nobody in here knows who the elect are, period. Doesn't, you just don't know. We don't have that barometer, right? The Bible says man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. So until then, until the elect is revealed, we need to preach the whosoever gospel. Amen? That means anybody. That means if you are living and breathing and alive, the gospel is willing and available for you. If you just turn and put your trust in Christ. Moving forward, still in verse 12. He says, because, John goes on to say, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. In the beginning, John starts off with combating the false notion, which I call false liberty, that you can be born again and still live in rebellion against God. John had to combat that because he said, hey, I write unto you that you may not sin. And, and if or should anyone sin, they have a propitiation from the Father, Jesus Christ, an advocate, I'm sorry, have an advocate from the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins, but not only our sins, but also the sins of the world. And he tells us that, look, we have an advocate, someone who stands in our place as our defense attorney, that should you fall to sin, because we still all fall, fall short of the glory of God, but should you, you have an advocate who stands and pleads your case before the Father. The people who don't know God don't have that. Don't be like them. And so he talks about how sin is egregious. He exhorted his readers that they should not walk in open rebellion. 
that group of Gnostics taught that spirit and matter are so evil and they cannot exist with, with us as believers. They have to be separate from one another and they cannot coexist. So once they were saved, some of them believed that they weren't responsible for what they did in the flesh. There's a lot of people walking around today thinking that too. Well, I accepted Christ. I accepted him in my heart and I can go live however I want because, you know, God always forgives, right? Always. You just ask him. He's a, he's a loving God and he always forgives, okay? Part of that's true. If you're a believer in him and you're contrite in heart and you come to him, absolutely. That's Abba Father. He's never far away, right? But we have to be honest. For someone who's living in willful rebellion against God, they have to come face him face to face if they're not born again. They have to see that. So these Gnostics were running around claiming in chapter one, they said, we don't have any sin. Got no sin to confess. We're we're all the way righteous. They lied about it. They said, we have not sinned. And they lived a lawless life contrary to the gospel of holiness. John wants his readers to especially know this important aspect of the gospel. Your sins are forgiven. Pass, present, future, done away with. He says, as far as the east is from the west, so far have I removed your transgressions from you. You are a pure, holy, and spotless in the sight of God because of Jesus. For you note takers, Psalm 32, 1 and 2, it says, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man whom the Lord will not impute iniquity and in whom, whose spirit there is no Deceit, we talked about sin before, disrupts fellowship and is extremely serious both for believers and non-believers. Yes, in the church, we talk about sin, okay? We don't ignore it, right? It is always the elephant in the room. We do have to address it every time because we love you. For non-believers, it leads to death. For believers, it disrupts fellowship. But as I said earlier, it never breaks sonship. You never sinned out of the family of God. Now, as Paul said, should we sin that grace may abound? Certainly not, right? But the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. So here we go. It has to be said every message. The internal consistency of Scripture is that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So if you had not heard that today, please hear it today. You are, just as you are a whosoever, you're also an all, okay? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 1 Kings 8.46 says, there's no one who does good, no, not one, and does not sin. So if you thought you did, you're out. Sorry. Hate to break it to you, but that's what it is. No one who does good. 1 John 3.4 says that all sin is lawlessness. Ezekiel 18 says the soul that sins will die. Romans 6.23, as you guys know, says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through our Lord Christ Jesus as some of us and many of us have experienced, sin has a heavy burden. It's hard to carry. It holds a sentence of punishment over our heads. That's why Jesus says, come to me. All of you are heavy laden and weary and I will give you rest. Take your yoke upon me. For my yoke is easy. My burden is light. And you will find rest for your souls. Saints, we're all doomed to eternal damnation if it, isn't, if it wasn't for the cross. God, although he's loving... He's also a just God and he absolutely has to punish sin or he's no longer just. This aspect again of forgiveness is a fundamental aspect of the gospel. 
on your outline when it says you're forgiven, I put Ephesians 1, 7, because that's one of the blessings of salvation is that there could be no relationship or fellowship if you're still have sin hasn't been paid for. This aspect, we have to understand it. Saints, we all desperately need God's forgiveness. Your neighbor cannot forgive you if you slap somebody else. I like to use the example of the youth group. I say, look, you need God's forgiveness because God is who you've sinned against. You've broken God's law. So if I slap my neighbor, I can't ask someone else to forgive me for slapping my neighbor, right? It's really basic. Only God can forgive our sins. Without forgiveness, we all get what we deserve. If we look at it from a legal standpoint, if one breaks the law, there's typically a fine or jail time, right? For crimes that require capital punishment, right? There's a sentence that needs to be paid. And so a price that needs to be paid. If that price is paid, the judge can legally let you go and still remain righteous in doing that. And that's what happens at the cross. Is that as Jesus died for our sins on the cross, he paid the penalty, the wage, the sin for our, for our sin. And God is able to legally let us go. That is one of the aspects of the gospel. The only place where the superhero dies for the villain. First Peter sums it up like this. It says the just for the unjust to bring us to God. Romans 5 tells us that while we were sinners, while we were weak and without strength, Christ died for the ungodly. He says, scarcely would one die for a righteous man. For a good man won't even dare to die. But God demonstrated his love towards us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And of course, 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin to become sin for us that you and I can become the righteousness of God. The Old Testament example is the goat in the wilderness. Okay, we use those words scapegoat. That came from the Bible, Right? What it was in the Day of Atonement, once a year, they would come in, and the high priest would confess the sins of Israel, the people, lay, lay his hands on a pure, blemish-free lamb. And there were two sacrifices. After he would lay his hands on the sacrifice, one of them, he would confess the sins of Israel, and then he would send it off far into the wilderness, basically off, off a cliff, some would believe, right? And that's the picture of God taking our sins as far as the east is from the west, all right? That deals with the taking away of sin, but then there's the appeasement of God's wrath that needs to happen. That's when the other goat, he would lay his hands on, same thing, and then the fire would come down and consume it to let it know that God accepted the sacrifice. And so that's what happened. Jesus was bruised on the cross. Isaiah 53 says the chastisement that brought you and I peace was put upon him. And it said that God made his soul an offering for sin. See, this aspect of forgiveness, it was free to us, but it cost God everything. And when we think about that, here's what it's going to help us do. So forgiveness, the word, literally means to send away, give up, keep no longer. Now, I know this. In the Christian faith, a lot of us struggle with unforgiveness with each other. A lot of us, what we have is, well, I can't forgive that person. When it comes to you, well, you want grace, right? You, you, you want everyone to forgive you, but we have a problem forgiving others. See, we need to go to what forgiveness really means biblically for us. This does not mean that sin is disregarded. It does not mean that the offense we lay down and we're just doormats, but that a person is liberated from the guilt 
and the burden of the offenses. The guilt of sin is a heavy burden to carry. It's bondage. And if we're slaves to sin, we can never have peace with God nor the joy of the Lord. Forgiveness, again, is one of the many blessings of salvation. Therefore, we are commanded to forgive one another as Christ has forgiven us. This aspect of forgiveness is troubling in the church today. We have such a hard time forgiving, letting go. And I believe partly it's because we don't understand what forgiveness is. See, sometimes we think forgiveness is, okay, if I forgive them, I have to trust them, right? And then I have to be around them. So I don't I can't do that. Right? I got to go stay far away. Or I have to forget. I have to forgive and forgive. You guys heard that, right? I grew up on that. Look, God, forgive and forget. Look, that's not natural. Let's be honest. You, you forget stuff. There's, a, there's, a, there's something called that, right? Isn't that, what is that called? Is that amnesia? What is it called? Right? That's a problem. That's not good. Okay? But here's what forgiveness really is. Forgiveness does not necessarily mean we forget, but that in spite of the memory, we erase the debt. Although I remember, I'm going to charge it to the cross. See, saints at the cross who surrender all of our rights, our rights to avenge, our rights to revenge, our rights to get back, we've surrendered it at the cross and we've given it all to Christ. Every last bit of it, everything is in Christ. I love the example of Joseph in Genesis. You guys remember Joseph? He had a nice pretty coat, he was styling, right? And his brothers got jealous because he told them the dream and then they figured out a way to plot and send Joseph into slavery, okay? Well, in God's perfect providence, we know how the story goes, that there ended up being a famine in the land and all of Joseph's brothers end up coming to Egypt. And by God's grace, Joseph had gained high honor in Pharaoh's house and was, I think, next to Pharaoh in power. And Joseph's brothers come to him did you guys remember Joseph saying, oh, hey, guy, I missed you guys. Where you guys been? Right? Come on, come eat at my table. Absolutely not. He did not do that. Although he forgave them, he didn't forget. But you know what he did? He tested them. Let me just see if these guys' hearts have changed. So go back, bring your little brother, bring him back here, and I'll see how you guys respond to that. As that went forward, it ended up being, he saw that they repented. He saw that they were contrite over what they did. He revealed himself to him. He was weeping. He was crying and he forgave them. He said, you know what? You intended it for bad, but God turned it to good and he forgave them. But he didn't forget about what happened. See, forgiveness does not mean trust. Trust is something that's earned. I don't just trust you out of the blue like that. You got to show me your trust worthy. But forgiveness is based on how you and I are forgiven. And so if any of you guys are struggling with forgiveness, you need to look at how much God has forgiven you. Every thought, everything you've done in secret and continue to do in secret, God sees that. Every evil thought you've had towards someone, you think God doesn't see. Everything's naked before him. You're not hiding anything from God, right? But we need to be believers, and part of that is forgiving one another. Ephesians 4.32, Colossians 3.13 says that if you do not forgive, I'm sorry, Matthew 6.15 actually, said if you do not forgive others, neither will your heavenly Father forgive you. As God in Christ has forgiven us, we must also forgive. It's such a fundamental aspect of the gospel. And I'll share with you guys a personal story. I'm, I'll, I'll, I'll get really close with you guys in here. Some of you guys know my brother was murdered about four years ago. We recently had the trial last year, 2019. 
So I was actually in the trial, like right, I probably was like maybe, I was even closer than this. I was like maybe four feet from the person who murdered my brother. I saw all the video cam, the, the cop cam. I saw this man show zero contrition for what he had did. Zero. He was callous. He didn't care. It's almost like he was looking at his handiwork. And that was hard to do. And I even at one moment, I'll, you know, I'll be honest, I knew one of the, the sheriff deputies that was in there. And he was like, hey, look, that guy's a scumbag. If you want to go ahead and have at it, like, I'll take, I'll take a while to get there. And I'm not going to lie to you guys. I, I thought about it. You know, I, I was like, you know what? I'm about four feet. I, have, I haven't done it in a while. Let me see these things still work. And I thought about it. You know what? I can give him a right hook. I can break him down completely and just ask for forgiveness later. Right? I thought about it. But I also thought about vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repent. And I also thought about my witness for Christ. What would I tell you guys? Hey, sorry, I kind of lost it, right? But <laughs> that's not going to work. And it was only by the grace of God when I was able to stand up there and give my statement. I was able to look him in his eye and say, I forgive you and I hope that you get saved. And I hope and pray that you come to know the Lord at the end of the day. But that was only because of the grace of God and the Holy Spirit. Because it was in my flesh, I would have just let, took the guy up on his offer. You know, I would have. But at the same time, we as Christians, we surrender that right. We must forgive as God in Christ has forgiven us. Truth, church, I know it's a heavy one. <laughs> Amen. I'm quiet up here. Make sure you guys don't have hypothermia. All right. We can test our spiritual maturity by how quickly we forgive others. Okay. If it takes us a long time, we need to check ourselves. Remember, God is going to repay all wrong. He said, whatever you've done to the least of them, you've done unto me. Spiritual maturity, we can tell by how quickly we forgive others. Saints, your sins are forgiven. What a glorious truth that we have. Not by good works, but through Jesus, he says. Not by Buddha, not by Charles Taze Russell. Oh, why are you bringing up all those people? This is why. I know some of you guys wonder, why. Well, you know, I had some people say, well, I go to the church, he talked about all the other religions and all the other teachers. Here's why. Because we love you guys. And I'm gonna give the example that I give the youth. If I bake you guys a wonderful chocolate cake, and it's good, I put some nice sugar in there, cinnamon, whatever, whatever, whatever you like. Just imagine that, right? But I went outside back where little Spooky's dog feces is, and I put a little bit of dog feces in there, just 10%, okay? And I began serving, and I knew that, and I just began serving it to you. Is that love? Well, that's what false doctrine is. It's dog feces, okay? It contaminates, all right? It contaminates, and it's no good. And so we have to call out all the false teachers, all the false doctrine, because we don't want your walk to be contaminated. We want you to know the truth, because the truth will set you free. So it's only through Jesus, he said, your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. No one else. See, no one else can forgive sins. The Bible says only God can forgive sins. For those of you who are thinking you've sinned way too much, the Bible says where sin abounds, grace abounds that much more. And I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You say, well, Pastor Josh, I have a porn problem, adultery, a fornicator. I'm an adulterer. I gamble, I gossip. I've raped, I've murdered. I'm an alcoholic, a drug addict. I've done all these things. I beat my wife, I steal. I, I try to earn God's grace. It does not mean or matter how much you've sinned. No matter where you are with the Lord today, you can receive forgiveness of sins right now if you have not. 
You can't, what the enemy wants you to do is stay in that mode of, I'll wait until I get righteous enough. Well, I'm not right to come to the Lord yet. And I'll be honest, that's like the person who's saying, I'll wait to get clean when I get in the shower, or I'll wait till later. The Bible says he has not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And I love Psalm 103, three and four for you note takers. It said, if the Lord should mark iniquities, who will stand? But there is forgiveness with you that thou mayest be feared. Verse 13. That's why we weren't going to get all the way. That's why. All right. Verse 13. In your Bibles, turn the page. He said, I write to you fathers because you have known him who is from the beginning. The NLT version translated like this. I am writing to you who are mature in the faith because you know Christ who existed from the beginning. The Apostle Paul, I mean, Apostle John, sorry. So used to reading Paul's letters. Apostle John now directs a, a more mature group as he addresses everyone in the church. Fathers, it means a Greek word pater. I probably pronounced that wrong. Spiritual fathers, more spiritually mature. This does not mean by age. See, we can get fooled and think, well, because he's older or he's been walking with the Lord longer, he's more mature. It's not true. I know people in the church 30 years and haven't got past forgiveness of sins. It happens all the time, right? You have people who just started serving. They're more spiritually mature than guys who've been serving for five years. We say, Josh, what's the difference? How close do you abide, right? How, how, how well do you read your Bible? How, where's your desire to grow in grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ? See, radical transformation requires radical obedience. If you want to be more and more like the Lord, obey him. That's the best thing for you. But now he addresses these more mature believers in the faith. It's measured by our intimate intimacy with him. So he now encourages a more spiritually mature group, reminding them that they have known him who is from the beginning. Speaking of Christ, we know in John 1, he says, uh, the word was in the beginning and the word was with God and the word was God. And the same was in the beginning with God, pointing to the fact that Jesus is God, which the Gnostics denied. Oh, well, he was a spirit and then he did all some other stuff and he wasn't really God. If you guys notice a lot, almost all the, the doctrines, here's where you go wrong. Every time you try to change something about Jesus, his nature, his character, whatever it may be, that's where you always get the false doctrine. And they always hone in on who? Jesus. Nothing else, all about the identity of who Jesus is. So he encourages them, says, hey, you've known him who's from the beginning. The Greek word means to become acquainted with and to know him personally and intimately. Same word used in Genesis when it talked about Adam and Eve knew one another for intimacy, for sex, to be real. Um, it, was a, it was a form of intimacy to know them personally like that. That's how close they're talking about when they say, you know, you've known him. Do you know him today? How has knowing him changed your life? Many would say, Josh, I know him. I do, I do, I do. But in your lifestyle, there's no evidence, right? There's only, there's only two conclusions of that. You're just immature in your faith or you're a liar. I didn't say that scripture said it, right? I'm just, I'm just calling what this says. And the thing is, is, if you're immature in your faith, you should grow. It's a blessing to grow and have a relationship with him. Back in verse three of the same chapter, he says, we know, we know him if we keep his commandments. He says, he that says he knows him and does not keep his commandments, he's a liar and the truth is not in him. Again, I'm just giving you the words of the Lord. 
I love this quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones. Here's what he said about Christians, how we should be different. He says, we Christians are to live in such a way that the people coming in contact with us will not understand us. They will be puzzled by us. They will feel that we are some sort of enigma and will be driven to say, well, they are as they are because they belong to that Christ of whom they speak. They are different. And so we have to ask ourselves, is that the type of scrutiny we get from the world? There's something different about them. They're, I can't put my finger on it. The joy, the peace that they have, it's attractive. It's a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. Do we truly know him? John says that they have, and he's encouraging them. In order for you to be able to combat the false lies of the world, you need to be re-encouraged about your blessings of knowing Jesus. John is incredibly careful to give out distinctives regarding the dual nature of the Lord Jesus Christ, that it was just not a man who claimed to be God. You guys remember the gospels? They said, we're going to stone you. They said that many times, actually. And he, and he said, why? And he, they said, well, because you're a mere man claiming to be God. They misunderstood the whole thing. See, Jesus was the man and then became God. He was God Almighty and came down and became man. It said he lowered himself, Philippians 2. said that he humbled himself and lowered himself and became like us. And then he said he humbled himself even to the point of death, obedience on the cross. And therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him a name above every other name at the name of Jesus. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He's both God and man. And so the Gnostics denied that. They said he's either one or the other, but he's not both. Sound like something familiar today, Jehovah's Witness. Well, he was the Archangel Michael, and then like he came to Jesus, and then he flew away, and he did all this other stuff. That stuff is, is fairy tales. Amen? Let's just be real. It's fairy tales. You look at the scriptures, you don't see any, any of that in there. That's why we always have to measure everything by the full word of God right here. It's been said that the son of God became the son of man so that the sons of men will become children of God. This had to happen. Not only are we forgiven, but we are part of the family of God. God is our father. He adopts us into his family and we can have a personal relationship with God, the father through the Lord Jesus Christ. The Gnostics did not know him. There's a lot of people today that do not know him. A room this big, a size of Peter's people in here probably in this room right now that do not know him. They think they do, but they do not know him. There's certain evidences we know that we know him. As born-again believers, we are to grow in our desire to please him, know him, make him known. 1 Timothy 2.12 says, We are examples to other believers and the world in conduct and faith and purity and word and love. Spiritual maturity is evidenced by our intimate walk with the Lord, obedience. You ready for this? And how we treat one another. This is a rough year. We saw a lot of things, but more than anything, I think it revealed the heart and condition of the church because we saw a lot of intolerance for people on one side or on this side and people weren't, as Christians weren't in the middle, we were picking a side and we were condemning other believers. Not everybody, but it was, it, it was a lot. It was really apparent. And so we say this, whenever we allow our opinion, our political view, or where we feel on a secondary issue to impact how we treat one another, 
We need to repent and get back to loving one another. See, true love is concerned about the best interest of the individual. But as someone once told me, Josh, if you cut off someone's nose, they're not interested in the flowers you're selling because they can't smell them, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> so we tell the truth and love, right? We tell the truth in love. We don't cut off noses. But this is all part of our sanctification process of knowing him. Knowing him through the revelation and study of his word. So saints, what is our attitude towards God's word? It's the exhortation part. Do we just see it as a pastime? Do we get to, I'll get to it on Sunday, maybe Thursday if I go, right? Is it just one of those type of things? Or is God's word, I love how the psalmist said, um, oh, how I love your word as my meditation day and night. He says at 119, he says, I rejoice in your word as one who has found a great treasure. As Job talks about how your word is, is uh, I love your word more than my necessary food. Jesus says, I, I delight to do thy will, O God, and law is within my heart. Saints, are we growing in the love for the word of God? What role does it play in our walk? How about prayer? How about fellowship? Let's pray for a renewed desire to know the Lord more intimately. As Jesus said in his high priestly prayer in John 17, this is eternal life, that we may know you, the one true God and your son whom you have sent. Truth. Still 13, he says, I write to you young men. Now addresses a, another set of maturity. He says, because you have overcome the wicked one. NLT says, I'm writing to you who are young in the faith because you have won your battle with the evil one, young men. So this means like young men, like under 40, spiritually young in the faith. Again, spiritual maturity doesn't come with age. It comes with intimacy and obedience to the Lord. We see it from all different age groups, spiritually mature and spiritually immature. John here addresses another group of, of maturity to the church. Those who are not babes, but they're progressing past milk onto the meat. We too are to progress past the milk onto the meat. You guys remember Apostle, well, I believe Apostle Paul wrote Hebrews. I could be wrong. People can argue that. Really doesn't matter. We know the Holy Spirit wrote it anyway. But in Hebrews 5.12, the writer of Hebrews was upset and disappointed. He said, you guys should have been teachers by now. Like, what, you, what were you doing this whole time? I left you guys with the word and I taught you. And what did you guys just sit there and let the word sit on you? You got to move. You got to grow. When he says in this, he says, the, um, Hebrews 5, 12 says this. I'll read to you guys. For though by this time, you ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. Saints, look, it comes a point in time when my favorite saints, where rubber has to meet the road and the chili has to meet the cheese, right? Rice got to meet the beans too. But at the same time, we have to grow in our faith. And I exhort you guys today, we need to go from glory to glory, faith to faith, and grace to grace. We shouldn't just be sitting still. There's a reason why it's called the Christian walk, not the Christian sleep. Not the Christian stand, but it's actually continually moving and growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord. He says the word, you have overcome. This means to conquer, subdue, or prevail. This is in direct opposition against the Gnostics. They were still in bondage to sin. They had not overcome because they did not have Jesus Christ the righteous. It's only through Christ that we overcome. So John exhorts and reminds these growing young believers that they have conquered the wicked one, 
Satan with Jesus Christ, the righteous. In other words, he lets them know that they're warriors. They're champions in Christ. Like King David and Goliath. He's a champion. He knocked them down all by faith in Christ. Not that you are overcoming, but he said you've already overcome. 1 John 4, 4 tells us that greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Romans 8, 37 says, yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Saint Satan is a defeated foe. He's less than Jesus. He's not even close to equal. He's the tempter, the deceiver. He's a liar and a murderer. And he's not your amigo. And he's not your friend. And you shouldn't hang out with him. He absolutely hates and detests all believers and all people. His mission is to come to steal, kill, and destroy. He wants to kill your faith. He wants to steal your joy. And he wants to destroy your peace. All these are things that only the Holy Spirit can give. It's so important to know our identity in Christ and our spiritual resources. Saints, we don't battle against flesh and blood, but honestly, we're like in Babylon. We're enticed by everything that's around here. The scripture says heaven is our home. We're just sojourners and we're passing through. But while we're passing through, we're also ambassadors for Christ. And we're going to have spiritual battles. And one of the main tactics of the enemy is to have us misdiagnose our battlefield. You know what he wants you to do? To bring a knife to the gunfight. He wants you to be ill-equipped so that you would think that your battle is actually with people when it's not a battle of flesh and blood. The Bible says, although we walk in the flesh, we do not war in the flesh. For our weapons of warfare are not carnal, but are mighty through God and the tearing down of strongholds. The battle is the Lord's, but we're to walk in faith and not by sight. People are not the enemy, but the ministry. Without people, there's no ministry. So anyone who's giving you a hard time or someone you feel is the enemy, and typically what the enemy will do is he'll go and try to start with the marriages. That's his number one place where he likes to hang out and just chill and break up marriages because it, it's the image of Christ in the church. The family, the marriage is the first institution that God had in the garden. So what he does is he gets couples to go against each other and claim that they're both the enemy, right? And what I'll say is, you know what the Bible says? Love your enemies, right? <laughs> so they're the enemy, love them anyway. Lo love them unto the Lord. But the, the truth of the matter is, saints, is that people aren't the enemy. Now, God can use, the enemy will use people. God will use people. But ultimately, our battle is a spiritual one. So you guys know what you need to do is you need to strap on the full armor of God, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith, the quench the fiery darts, the belt of truth, right? The sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. It's the only offensive weapon in the armor. And of course, those sandals better be ready to share the good news, right? Amen? Have those strapped on. But as believers, we are not in bondage to sin, but we do war. We're not in bondage, but we are in war. And we always must be ready for that war spiritually. We're commanded in Galatians 5 to walk in the spirit so we don't gratify the desires of the flesh. We are overcomers in Christ. Don't let the enemy beat you up and make you depressed and make you feel defeated. All who are in Christ have that power to overcome. It reminds me of this. It's a theme song. My grandma's from the South and she grew up in the civil rights movement. And so we grew up on this theme song called We Must Overcome. And here's what it says. It says, we shall overcome, we shall overcome, we shall overcome someday. 
Oh, deep in my heart, I do believe we shall overcome someday. We'll walk hand in hand. We'll walk hand in hand. We'll walk hand in hand someday. Oh, deep in my heart, I do believe we shall overcome someday. We shall live in peace. We shall live in peace. We shall live in peace someday. Oh, deep in my heart, I do believe we shall overcome someday. For we are not afraid. We are not afraid. We are not afraid today. But saints, our battle was won on the cross. We've already overcome 2,000 years ago. And so now we don't labor for victory. We labor in victory for all who are in Christ Jesus. Truth up, saints? All right, I'll end it right here just because of time. You know, that, you know, it's crazy how that works, right? All right. <laughs> so they write unto you little children because you have known the Father, the same thing he said before. And it says, this message is across the board. You have known him. John 14, 7 says, if you would have known me, you would have known my father also. Saints, we know the father through the son. And if we deny the son, we deny the father also. That's why a lot of people, I believe in God, but I don't believe in Jesus. Then you don't believe in God. Real simple, right? Well, Jesus, God didn't exist. Well, then you don't believe in God. You denied him. Well, show me gladly, right? <laughs> and we get to this. But we only know God through the son. And Hebrews 1.3 says Jesus is the brightness of his glory, the express image of his persons. In Colossians 1.15, it says Jesus is the invisible God made visible. In Colossians 2.9, it says Jesus is the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form. Again, to know him, have a personal relationship with him by grace, through faith in Christ. What we believe about God is the most important thing about us. Our theology determines our doxology, meaning how we worship. You have worship disorder because you have a distorted view about who Jesus is. That's why it's so, so, so important to read your Bibles. What does the scripture say? One of Paul's favorite themes, what saith the scriptures? What does the scripture say? Very important. Verse 14, and we'll end it quickly. Four minutes. So I've written to you fathers because you have known him who is from the beginning, which he repeated in in the verse one, I've written to young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the wicked one on your outline. You're victorious to overcome sin and Satan through the word of God. Saints, the word of God, it's the spoken word. That needs to be the foundation. That is the one who built his house upon the rock. Jesus says, you're a wise master builder. The one who hears my words and obeys them, I will liken him to the one who built his house upon the rock and not on sand. And see, every faith, like you guys know, an untested faith is an unreliable faith. Can't trust it. But you know where you really are with God is when that test comes. In the parable, it's the storm. It said they beat upon the house. And how great was that fall for the house that was built upon sand? Sand is lies, manipulation, deceit. The main one, your own understanding. You're not right and you don't know everything. But Jesus does. And so the Bible exhorts us to not lean on our own understanding. And so Paul said, I mean, I'm sorry, I keep thinking of Paul. Paul. Apostle John says that you overcome, you are strong, and the word of God abides in you. Abides is one of his favorite words. It means, it means to continue, to present, to not depart. Jesus says in John 15, 7, but if you remain in me, my words will remain in you and you ask anything and I will give it to you. Are we abiding in the word of God? See, these are one of the spiritual maturity tests for us. Are we continuing? And again, you don't do this on your own. 
Acts 1 8 says, You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. This is by walking in the power and fullness of the Holy Spirit. Now, the time we'll have to finish the rest next time. So, in review, because you know Jesus, your sins are forgiven. You know the Father, you have a relationship with Him. When we cry, Abba, Father, Daddy is never far away. And we're victorious over sin. We don't labor for victory. We labor in victory. And guess what? The word of God makes you strong. Psalm 1 tells us that you shall be like a tree planted by rivers of water and you shall receive your fruit in due time and your leaf does not wither and everything you do shall prosper because you delight in the word of God. Just two times, saints, day and night. All right? Amen. Let us pray. Worship team, come on up. Father, we do thank you and we love you so much for who you are and what you've done. Lord, we thank you for your precious word that is able to make us wise into salvation. And Lord, I do pray that the word landed on good ground, that we cherish the word, we take it and hide it in the depths of our heart that we may not sin against you. Lord, we thank you for the precious gift of salvation. Lord, the scripture says, how can we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Jesus, it's all through you. You're the one who we worship. You're the one who we praise. You're the one who said it's your words that they are truth and they are life. And no one can come to the Father but by you. So we thank you, Lord, for calling us out of darkness and translating us out of the kingdom of darkness into your marvelous light. We love you, Lord, and we thank you. May we worship you in spirit and in truth. In Jesus' holy name we pray and the saints said, amen. Let's